This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, December 19th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Joe Biden has had a hard time detailing a coherent reason for American taxpayers to continue to provide tens of billions of dollars for war in Ukraine. Justin Logan details a few of the reasons why U.S. interests aren't well served by devoting billions more. Can you give me a sense of just the status of the United States with respect to Ukraine in terms of our financial or other material support of their effort against Russia? So at this point, we have committed over $113 billion in aid to Ukraine, including military aid and other financial aid. Some of the congressional Republicans, Senator Vance in particular, has pointed out that the $113 billion figure does not include everything, reprogramming of of other funding, for example. So if anything, that's a a lowball figure. And the administration has a request pending, as we're speaking at present, for another $61 billion in aid that is a real bone of contention on Capitol Hill at present. So depending on whose accounting you're, you're working from, it's approaching $200 billion if this most recent request is granted. So this has been over the same time period where both public opinion on the necessity for U.S. involvement in this fight has declined, and particularly among Republicans who have, even in Congress, their support has waned outside of leadership, of course. Yeah, that's right. So I think, you know, the American people are very fickle in a sense. It's easy to get Americans spun up about something, but they can lose attention quickly. And particularly if a fight is seen not to be going terribly well. And I think it is at this point more or less conventional wisdom that the vaunted counteroffensive, which was supposed to promise great gains for Ukraine throughout 2023, has really come uh, practically to naught. The gains have been minimal, to put it uh, diplomatically, and they've come at a tremendous cost, both in economic terms and in personnel terms from the Ukrainian point of view. So I think that the questions that are being asked by people on Capitol Hill and by my, myself and my colleagues are, you know, what is the end game here? I mean, I think the administration has been pushing against very difficult material realities here. It's it's very, very difficult for what the Ukrainians continue to say are their objectives. It's going to be very, very, very difficult for them to meet those objectives. Now, it's entirely plausible and reasonable for them to say our objectives are the sun, the moon, and the stars so that then at some point in the future, they can back down and say, well, we're not actually going for the sun, the moon, and the stars, but something less than that is what we will settle for. But at the same time, I think that, you know, Americans deserve a story here that they have not been getting from the administration about what our end state is. And I think that, you know, throughout the course of the war, the administration has essentially outsourced the story about the U.S. interests to the Ukrainians. And I think that's really malpractice when we're writing very substantial checks and running what, to my mind, are very substantial risks in this conflict, Americans deserve a fulsome accounting of our interests that is commensurate with our investment. So to the extent that the the Biden administration has come out with, if not a plan, at least a vision for what the end game looks like, what have they actually said? Essentially nothing. 
they have essentially deferred to the Ukrainians. They have, again, highlighted this as part of a global struggle between democracy and autocracy. They have said that were Putin to be successful, which they don't define, for example, the Ukrainians say that their goal, understandably, is to restore sovereignty over their internationally recognized territory to include Crimea. The U.S. intelligence community says that if Putin believes that his hold on Crimea were threatened, he would use tactical nuclear weapons. Now, if that's a Ukrainian war aim, and if the U.S. intelligence community says that they believe that Putin would use tactical nuclear weapons to prevent that Ukrainian war aim from being achieved, do we want the Ukrainians to achieve that war aim? It seems dubious to me. But the Biden administration has been kind of silent on these questions. And they've, they've really emphasized this belief that, as Jake Sullivan put it last week, that what's at stake here is another major war in Europe echoing World War I and World War II that Americans would have to go in and fight. That is the idea that Putin will not stop in Ukraine, that he will somehow plunge into Poland or the heart of Europe, Germany somewhere. And I think this is just fanciful. I mean, they're really sort of rattling the cup. They're looking for to get the $61 billion request funded, but with some really extraordinary and to my mind, really ridiculous arguments about, again, Russia sort of plunging into Poland or somewhere beyond Ukraine when the Russians have shown themselves, you know, incapable of being able to overrun a much smaller, much weaker neighbor in the form of Ukraine. So this has brought enormous costs to Russia. It's hard to overstate the costs in, in Ukraine to this, this fight. And the United States wants to be involved, but also not really involved. That is to say, directly involved. And yet this risk the continued spending that the U.S. is doing on behalf of Ukraine would seem to draw us considerably closer to being directly involved, whether we, whether U.S. wishes it to be the case or not. There's always been this weird incoherence between what the administration says the stakes are in Ukraine and the considerable but not fulsome investment that they have made. They've talked about the future of the West is at stake in Ukraine. They've talked about the future of the world order is at stake in Ukraine. And they've also said that, you know, we're not going to involve our personnel in Ukraine. Well, if the future of the world order is at stake, if the future of the West is at stake, it does sort of beg the question. The future of democracy in the world is at stake. It does beg the question. Why wouldn't you involve your personnel there? Well, Biden says if we were to do so, it would be World War III. Well, that's also a coherent argument. But if the future of world order and the West and democracy is at stake, it raises the question, why wouldn't you get involved if you're seeding the prospect of world order there? So they've had these sort of conflicting arguments, right? And as they've tried to make the case for this latest $61 billion, They've said a number of things. They've said, again, that, you know, Putin is about to, to, to uh, go outside the borders of Ukraine and, and, and attack another country. And they've also said that uh, Russia has lost 315,000 men in the course of this conflict. So they're trying to show, you know, look, we're, we're doing something in Ukraine. So, you know, the, the Ukrainians are doing something materially important in Ukraine. Well, were it the case that Russia had lost 315,000 men in Ukraine? It's clearly the case that they can't <laughs> plunge into the heart of Europe with that having been the case. So they have these conflicting arguments that the Russians are on the ropes and 
poised to do something even bigger in, in, in the context of Europe. So there, to my mind, it has been just a morass of internally contradictory arguments that they've made that on the one hand, the Russians are a colossal threat and they're essentially a cigarette uh, in the ashtray waiting to be stubbed out. This is the kind of cynicism that foreign policy people engage in all the time, but I'm not like you, Justin. Welcome. I am much less cynical. But if I were very cynical and were broadly opposed to the project, the broad project of Vladimir Putin, and I also did not want the U.S. to be directly involved in a war, I might want to spend billions of dollars of U.S. money to effectively drain the resources of Russia, and that would be all to the good. There's even a name for this. It's called a bloodletting strategy. So we, we uh, IR cynics, yeah, there, there's a name for that. I mean, that's a perfectly coherent argument. The response that I would make is we're kind of there. If you really want to take a generation out of the Russian war machine and set back the Russian conventional military, again, for, to my mind, a generation, that's done. That's already in the can. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't set out and say, this is going to be great for us because we're going to bleed the Russians white in Ukraine. However, just as an empirical matter, I think that's the case. That's already been done. So the question becomes, if you persist in that strategy, does it get to a point where were it to continue, Russia begins to feel anxiety that it's gone so far that they are in jeopardy of losing the ability to defend themselves, right? That it's, that it's gone on so far. Again, take, for example, the Crimea scenario where Putin were to feel he was losing his hold on Crimea and that intelligence community judgment that that would cause him to reach potentially for tactical nuclear weapons. That's a scenario where you start to get anxious about having pushed things too far. But again, putting my cynic hat back on, it's just the case that Russia has been bled white in Ukraine already. And that's just, you know, whether that was a, a motivating factor here, and I think you can make a case that it was, that's already been done. Okay. And, and even if that's true, the value of achieving that for the United States in light of our current fiscal situation, it's hard to come out with concluding that that's a good deal for us when we have, you know, trillion dollar deficits as far as the eye can see and debt growing as fast as it ever has. You know, I wrote this piece last week with Dan Caldwell, a uh, colleague, and I, I'm, you will rarely see me make fiscal constraint arguments about foreign policy. And you hear these in politics a lot that we have big debt and deficits, but I'm beginning to wonder whether we're getting to a fiscal constraint. If you look out at the world and say to yourself, we have a near peer competitor in the form of China in Asia that's doing things militarily that really complicate our strategy in Asia. If you look at the national debt, which I haven't checked the debt clock, but it's at 33.9 something trillion dollars. It may be at 34 trillion. Congratulations, America. Interest on the debt is now roughly a trillion dollars a year. It's larger than the defense budget. The budget deficits are about trillion and a half dollars set to go to almost three trillion dollars by 2033. Again, I, I have been somebody that says this project of ours in foreign policy is probably sustainable from a fiscal point of view. 
But as you look at the CBO estimates of our fiscal picture, and if you look at the political paralysis and political circus that is happening down the street here, it really doesn't give you a lot of reason for hope that this is going to be solved before it gets worse. And so if you look at, you know, Medicare and Social Security and defense spending, suddenly defense spending starts to look like a pretty uh, nice piggy bank to break into, to raid, to pay for you know, Aunt Sally's hip replacement or, or whatever the case may be for that Medicare. And historically, we've done that. We have. We have. So I think that it really is the case that we're in jeopardy of bumping up against a fiscal constraint when it comes to foreign policy. And, you know, again, $200 billion isn't, you know, it sounds grotesque to say this, but isn't. <laughs> it's a lot of money to me. It's a lot of money in Washington. It's not Medicare. It's not Social Security, but it's a decent chunk of change. And so I think that, you know, if we have this strategy going on that is totally underspecified, that has a year of essentially no gains for Ukraine, we really need to ask ourselves what is being gained for the American people here at what cost? Justin Logan directs defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please. And thank you for listening.